0: Hello, I'm Kenza, and this is the Finding Space Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Finding Space Podcast. This week, I talked to the former British paracyclist, Liz clark Saul. Liz talks about her teens, where she was first diagnosed with cancer. She then talks about how cycling became a major part of her life and made her feel empowered, and then opens up about the last few years where being re-diagnosed with cancer has had a huge impact on her cycling career and her life unfortunately towards the end of this episode there's some slight noise interference however i hope this doesn't take away from a truly amazing story enjoy
1: i think at the age of 12 i didn't necessarily understand the gravity of what i was going through and when i was first when i first went into the hospital it was oh well we think you've bruised your bone from an athletics injury and then it was oh we think it might be a cyst and then oh no actually we think it's this kind of cancer instead so it sort of got drip fed through anyway just by virtue of them not really knowing what was wrong Um, and so I don't I think if someone had told me right at the beginning of that well two two and a half years you're going to have your leg amputated then it probably would have been a lot Um, but because it happened kind of over a longer period and you know, there's a lot of complicated conversations with doctors, and you know, I don't. In a way, it was easier than it is now because I didn't have to listen in those kind of conversations. I just sort of got told what was going to happen, and I just sort of got on with it. And you know, my family didn't treat me any differently. You know, we'd go on, you know, come out up to London as a family and go sightseeing, and I'd be on crutches, and we'd, you know, be going around the Millennium well the Millennium Dome is a bit before, but. You know, we'd be going around to like the BBC on a tour, and we'd be, you know, and I'd just be on crutches, and it would just be that thing that we got on with. So, I do. I don't think at that age I really understood and necessarily had to deal with kind of the mental side of stuff. I just sort of got on with it. It was more of an annoyance, got in the way, um, and I guess once I then had my leg amputated, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, as a fourteen-year-old, you we were dealing with lots of kind of issues anyway around body image and trying to work out who you are and so I guess I had that but you know slightly heightened because you know I knew I was different looked different from everyone else I don't think at the time I really understood that looking back I can see how that might have affected me and perhaps if it were a struggle it was but at the time you know I didn't really have any specific like counselling support and we just sort of got on with it really <laughs>
0: I mean, as you say, that such a uh, that time period for most people is such a weird age to go through because you are trying to understand your body. Yeah, everyone's
1: got that like teenage angst, haven't they? You know, who am I? What music do I like? Am I cool? Am I, you know, do people fancy me? What do I look like? Am I, you know, am I bit fatter than my friends? Am I thinner than my friends? You know, I've grown boobs and I've got you know suddenly you know boys' boys voices breaking, and you know everyone is going through all of that stuff. I guess I just had one extra element to deal with
0: so obviously your sort of connection with cycling was sort of quite a few years after um, school wasn't it
1: yeah so I didn't um, pick up cycling until kind of 2013 Um, I had a bike I moved to London after doing my undergrad um, so I moved to London to do my MA and obviously really poor so i got a bike off free cycle to get to and from uni so I didn't have to pay for the bus um so I started cycling like really badly on an old like mountain bike um but I always sort of knew sport was something I wanted to get back into but I just didn't know how it's I think Paris sport has changed an awful lot since in you know the last decade in terms of accessibility and how now I feel like there's a lot more ways to get involved. And there's a lot more people out there as role models that you could either approach or, you know, governing bodies who would be there to kind of help you get back into support. Um, but at that time I was like, well, I'm, I know I'm really unfit and I know I maybe can't, you know, run in the same way that someone would, or perhaps I need a different kind of bike or, but I, there was no, I didn't find that there was any way really to kind of help me get back into sport. I just felt like I was so far beyond, Mm. you know, like, you know, going to the gym, I wouldn't have had any clue what to do.
0: I guess able-bodied sort of athletes don't think in those terms. Like, we... Sort of growing up, you don't think, oh, I have role models and I have these access... It's just there and it's a subconscious thing.
1: And I don't think... Until the Paralympics was on TV, and it sounds such a cliche, but until that was on TV, you're not you know there weren't really that many people for me to kind of look at and go well maybe I could do that but for an able-bodied person if they go right I'm gonna get fit I'm gonna go for a run all they need is a pair of trainers but for an amputee you think well I need trainers but then do I need a running leg but then how do I get a running leg could blaze are really expensive or maybe I can just run in my normal leg but then I've got blisters and well my leg in my liner is sweating and so that's you know that doesn't work and well, now I'm in shorts and everyone's looking at me and there's a lot more stuff to consider than, you know, able-bodied person that can just, you know, go and do a couch to 5K and just set off.
0: I I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this yourself, but how I imagine there's a lot of people just not knowing how to deal with it, sort of because they're not being exposed to that.
1: Yeah, I think I feel like it has changed and I feel like people stare at me less these days and you know you get small kids coming up sometimes being like wow where did you get your robot leg from and sometimes the parents are still embarrassed but the kids have like no bother about coming up and asking you those questions and I don't know if that's because I am more comfortable in my skin so I perhaps don't notice people looking anymore or whether people genuinely are like yeah well you know seen that before and so aren't as bothered. And I imagine it's probably a combination of the two. Because if you are paranoid about other people looking at you, then you naturally think, well, that person's staring, and well, that person's having a look. And... But, you know, I'm just not bothered anymore. Yeah. I really don't, really don't care. And, and so I probably, you know, probably pay a lot less attention to it as well.
0: And just sort of touching on that quickly, is that something that, you have come to sort of deal with yourself, or is that something that over time you've sort of had to consciously talk about? That sort of mental conversation about you know dealing with those situations in the outside world—is that been a, a struggle over time, or it's just naturally you've come to terms with it as you've sort of grown older?
1: Yeah, I think it's something I've definitely come to terms with, and part of it is working through all those things that I was really worried about like well if I meet a load of new people well they're just not going to want to be friends with me because and it sounds really stupid now when you say it out loud but you know well, maybe they're not going to be friends with me because you know I can't go out in high heels and I probably don't want to wear a short skirt because you know my legs look different you know well are they going to wanna be friends with me because I can't just go and do sport with them you know is anyone going to fancy me or you know but it, again, I went to, you know, I went traveling and I went to uni and suddenly like, oh, well, I am making friends and, you know, I am going out with people and all those things that I was really worried about for some, you know, that I was worried about would happen, didn't, like none of that happened. And no one ever said anything unkind. People, you know, my husband, when I first met him, you know, put his foot in it and was mortified. <laughs> in, like, for the fun. But, you know, I was wearing flip-flops, and I think he looked at my foot and was like, are you wearing tights? Like, what's wrong with your foot? And I explained, and he was absolutely mortified, and was like, well, he has now said he's like, he thought I'd never speak to him again, and that he was, you know, he'd said something really awful. But, you know, now, you know, nine years later, we're still together, so <laughs> <laughs> it's like other people are worrying about that kind of stuff as well. And it's, and part of it is just maturing, I think, and some of those insecurities that you have as a teenager people you just get over i think with age as well and you know meeting meeting other people you know i met really good friends through the cycling program who's also an amputee you know meeting her is like well i'm not on my own anymore she was the first person i met who was an amputee who we could like i could properly talk to as a friend and you know we have a lot of other stuff in common too is not just yeah the one foot thing but you know you suddenly think well there's other people out there getting on with it yeah All fine
0: as soon as you can communicate with someone that is in a similar situation it's amazing how much that can help so it you know
1: yeah you suddenly feel a lot less alone because yeah there's someone else you can talk to about well you know what do you do <laughs> if xyz happens or you know how do you manage on the bike and in school you are that only person that has something different and then joining the paracycling team and meeting a whole range of people you think well you know everyone's got something something <laughs> going on like you know the whole team have interesting stories of how they've ended up where they are um something else you know everyone's got their own shit going on and you suddenly think well you know
0: talk us through that process of finding sport again i guess and then suddenly finding out that you're very good at sport
1: <laughs> yeah i was yeah i was not very good to start with. Um. I started, so in 2013, the, uh, the cycling to British cycling team started their new, like road to Rio kind of recruitment program. Um, and they had lots of gaps for women on the squad. So the way that paracycling classifications work on the, on the bike, you've got C one to five. And so they had quite a lot of holes, um, in the lower categories. And I thought I tried running a bit and it just wasn't for me, um, and so I think my sister sent me the advert for it and was like, you should apply. Um, and I wasn't sure because I was still really unfit. And um, Jack in the end persuaded me to sign, you know, fill in the form and send off the picture and see what happened. So I went to Manchester on a training day, and did a couple of kind of watt bike tests and then they called me back and said, well, you want you to come on a training camp? So I went to, I think it was probably Newport in Wales, kind of rode the velodrome and did some, Road rides, I think, I'm pretty sure it was that camp that I did where both me and Sally had to get off to walk up a hill because we were, like, we were so, I was so unfit and I was just on trainers on a road bike. So my left leg pretty much wasn't doing anything because you've got no upward pull because, you like, your left foot's just, yeah, there. It's just like being dragged round. And we both had to get off and walk up this hill because of the uh, I was either going to pass out or be sick or fall off. So I was definitely not good to start with. Um, but yeah, I went home, got a road bike and started training on the turbo, doing lots of stuff in the morning. So I was still working full time. So doing kind of morning and evening.
0: At what point did you start to suddenly realize, actually I, this is something I could keep pursuing or did it sort of just, you naturally just get suckered in over time?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I did a few camps and then I was worrying about how it was working balancing with work and the amount of commitment that it needed and I think I actually missed a training camp in January because I really wasn't sure about carrying on. Um, I felt quite overwhelmed I think with the amount of training and the amount of commitment which obviously it needs but it was just such a world away from where I'd come from where I wasn't even like going to the gym every week to suddenly having to do all this training and reporting back and so I missed that January camp and then picked it back up again and I think it just sort of went from there I suddenly found you know I was actually quite enjoying the training and the people on the squad were really nice you know made some really good friends and I just sort of I liked that environment and the it like challenge myself doing something different in turn, you know it's quite cool to be a cyclist you know <laughs> gives like something interesting to talk about and I just yeah I just sort of I don't know we kind of fell into it and then we went for a racing that summer out in Italy, um, to a couple of C1s, which are kind of quite low down on the pecking order of UCI races, um, but they're still uh, run by the UCI, so the international. Um, and went out and did a couple of road races and won the road race and the time trial. Wow. Um, I mean, a lot, a lot, not a lot of people in my category turned up. I will caveat that with like I got two golds, but you know, there wasn't a huge field, but I still did it and I think then I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this will work or maybe, <laughs> maybe I should keep going with this. Um, and ended up doing more on the track and just, you know, I liked how my body was changing. I felt like strong and confident and powerful for the first time in a long time. And you know, it was, people are looking at what you can do and how good you are at something rather than feeling like that person that you know doesn't really like walking a long way and <laughs> You know, perhaps isn't particularly fit. It suddenly sort of changed my whole perspective, and I think it just, yeah. At the beginning, I really wasn't sure, but like six months down the line, it was yeah the best thing I'd ever done.
0: Not many people go through such a drastic change of from the difficulties you may have had in terms of a teenage going through hmm. a teenager going through people sort of looking out for you changing things maybe constantly feeling like you're I don't know holding people back or something to suddenly being like people are just incredibly impressed by what you're doing
1: yeah and I think if, if you're thinking back to talking about having that confidence now where I don't really care if people look when you're on the bike and you're putting in all that effort you can't hide you know you can't make yourself look pretty or you know, make, you know, just pretend your legs are both the same. You know, you're out there in shorts, you're sweating all over the place, you get off the bike, you've got to remove your liner because there's so much sweat in there. And, you know, suddenly, no, and there's lots of other people doing the same kind of thing. So it just doesn't, it doesn't become a thing anymore.
0: It normalizes it. Yeah. That's yeah.
1: just who you are. And I think doing, like, doing cycling and taking that up at that kind of level really helps you just accept what you can do and how what your body you know this is just who i am it's what it doesn't matter what's happened to me but it's what you know what your body can do and how you perform rather than you just being different
0: building up to sort of rio 2016 was your sort of target how i guess firstly what are the like logistics of trying to get to uh paralympics and then I sort of talk through the whole process of not making it, and how was that in terms of your sort of mental, mental sort of view viewpoint on being this elite athlete?
1: Yeah, so the run up to Rio, so you spend the period before the games, the whole season before the games, accumulating points, and points mean number of athletes that you get to qualify. So I'd done a lot of races kind of in the year beforehand you know went to worlds track worlds and road worlds to qualify these points and I was I mean ideally to take you to the games ideally they want you to be winning gold medals and I was never quite at that level I was always a bit you know way off kind of fourth fifth sixth and so part of me knew that going to the games would be a bit of a long shot but then we'd also qualified quite a lot of places and so you still keep working towards that, and they don't make selection until, I guess, when it be like in the summer of, before the games, so the games is in September, and you have to keep working as hard as possible in those six months in the run-up to the games, because you've got, you know, you've no idea what might happen to some of the people you think are certs who should go, and you know, you have to put yourself in the best position possible by the time that selection meeting comes around. And you know, I worked my ass off for that whole summer, even though perhaps the beginning of the year I wasn't where I should be to, you know, be guaranteed a spot at the Games. Um, but, yeah, and then was told that I wasn't going, definitely wasn't going. Um, and it's, yeah, we we think, well, what's the point? <laughs> you know, I was on the Road to Rio programme, and you, yeah, you just think, well, put all that hard work in, you know, erased for, you know, three years before the Games to try and qualify points which have then just gone to other people. And it's hard not to feel like bitter towards some of the people mm. who are going. Um but I was yeah, it's tough because that's all you've been working for and everyone's asking, Oh, so you're going to the Paralympics then or you know, it's trying to, ex- part of the difficulty is explaining to other people how that system works. And it's not something I ever understood before I got into the sport. But, you know, just because you're on the squad doesn't mean you're going. And just because you're, you know, the best C4 rider they've got on the road doesn't mean you're going. Mm. Um, so there's, yeah, no guarantees.
0: The next sort of stage of your cycling career wasn't one that was necessarily planned in any way, shape or form
1: no i did i went out to the road world cup at the beginning of the season in belgium um which i think was around april time um i had a really bad chest infection i still did the time trial my numbers were good um but i sat out at the road race which is the first time i'd ever not done something It was the first time i'd kind of quit i guess i didn't yeah i didn't even start i was like i just i don't feel like i can i'm gonna go out there and I just ride around on my own which is pointless um and then we did nationals um, back in the UK in June. Um, and I was still having issues with my back and I did nationals and the TT was really good, but by the road race day, I was just a bit knackered on Sunday. So didn't really go to plan the hill, there was a hill in it. And I just like fell to pieces a bit really. <laughs> it wasn't, was not the prettiest race I've ever done. Um, and so I carried on training, but I've been seeing a physio for my back quite a bit. Um, and I went in one Monday and she said, the the treatment I'm giving you isn't really alleviating any of the pain. You've had a cough for a while. So I think we've probably fractured a rib. So we're going to do a CT scan, get the doctor in. and just have a look because I just want to rule that out before we start looking at other options. And the doctor came in, did the CT scan. The pain I had was on my right. And he was like, well, the ribs on on the right look fine, Um, but the ones on the left look kind of cloudy. Um, So I think we just need to give you an x-ray and we'll have a quick look, see what's going on. Um, And I panicked then because when I had, when I was first diagnosed in like 2001, what they'd said on the x-ray was the, where the tumor is looks kind of bubbly and cloudy. And he said that about my ribs. And I cried in front of my physio. And then I was like, we can't, it can't be that though, because I've been clear for, what was it that time? Like 15 years, six, well, seven, no, it was 17 years between original diagnosis. So, like, so I've been clear for a long time. I had on my follow-up, you know, I'm fine. I'm, a, I'm an elite sports person. You know, yesterday I rode 60 miles. So, you know, it can't be that, sorted myself out. Um, he came back having looked at the x-ray and said, we think you've actually got some fluid on your chest. So you might have walking pneumonia, which fitted with kind of the coughing and feeling run down. He was like, to diagnose that, we need to do a CT scan. Um, So the joy of being part of British Cycling is that you have private medical um, insurance. So I had the CT scan that afternoon um, after work. Um, And then they called me back in. I went, well, they did that. And he said, I'm going to refer you to a lung specialist who can look at the pneumonia. So I had a meeting with him on the wednesday like not that long afterwards um and he was like i've seen the x-ray there's some suspicious spots on it and given your history i think this is probably what's happening and that your cancer has come back so you know i immediately went from a really heavy training week the week before to being told you might have pneumonia so you need to be on bed rest to actually no it's probably not pneumonia is like the best thing it could have been you know actually I think probably your cancer's come back um and I always knew that if it came back it would be incurable so if it goes anywhere it goes to your lungs so I knew that because it was in my lungs that was it really sort of (laughs) the (laughs) cycling and sport suddenly becomes like right at the bottom of your list of priorities really
0: that must have been such a strange feeling coming from the like elite athlete, as you say, to finding that out again, 'cause you you must kind of feel invincible as an elite athlete in so many ways in terms of yeah, I was your... like
1: you know, I'm the fittest I've ever been, I was putting out good numbers, and you know i'd I'd struggled a bit over the months previously, but you, like not to the extent where you think something is really like seriously wrong um and as I had quite a lot of fluid on my chest, which they drained. And they drained two and a half litres from my right lung. Um, which is a lot. <laughs> you know, wow. think in terms of like Coke bottles, big Coke bottles. As
0: A lot of fluid. And, you know,
1: I had been riding around with that on my chest for a long time.
0: Must be heavy. Or do I you not? because
1: it accumulated so slowly. I just didn't oh, okay. notice. Yeah. And because I was so fit, my body, you know, my body was able to compensate for that. Mm. And when I had, I had more fluid a bit later in the year. And over a three-month period, only 800 mil accumulated. So, for there to have been two and a half liters, you wonder like how long had that actually been there for and doing that for for it to get to that kind of level. So, yeah, you, there's this. You can't. I still can't get my head around what the scans look like versus how I feel even now. You look at the scans and you think, Jesus, (laughs) this is horrendous. But then I'm fine generally on a day-to-day basis. You know, I swim and I'm working and I'm, you know, walk to the train station and, you know, I'm fairly symptomless. You know, I've as in now now yeah. So even, like it, you know, I still struggle to get my head around how that how that was what the scan showed in like summer 2018 and what how I actually felt because you know I was on the bike riding you know doing a full training program and suddenly they're like oh yeah no well there's something quite seriously wrong with you here
0: that disconnect between being told you know you've experienced this in a very raw way from your childhood but then being told it again like you know exactly what it is but that must be quite a challenging thing as you say to deal with Sort mm. of knowing it but not believing it. In not yeah. not that you're not believing it is happening. But, but there is
1: a di- there is that sense of disbelief. Um because you're like, I don't understand how this has happened. Yeah. You know, there and it's you know, a lot to deal with and get your head around. To and suddenly change overnight from and you don't, you, but the thing is you haven't changed overnight. So, you know, I rode to that weekend and then on, you know, by the next weekend I'd had a cancer diagnosis. So, you know, on paper overnight I've changed from being an elite athlete to being a cancer patient. But in myself, I haven't changed at all. I'm still exactly the same person. And suddenly all the people are telling you, well, you should be struggling with your breathing. You should be you know, there's a tumour in your spine, there should be, but you. Uh, I don't feel like that.
0: Yeah, it's sort of going back to those initial things you were saying about you're suddenly being told how you are or what you are rather than the stage where you felt empowered as people asking about what mm. you're doing. and.
1: Yeah. And I think that's how we've kind of lived the last, well, it's coming up for two years now, Um is go by how I feel rather than what the scans say. And, you know, I had some drama a couple like a month or so ago with the tumor in my spine, where the oncologist saw the scan and kind of went, shit, you need to come into A&E because, you know, it looks really bad. And I walk in and they're like, is, uh, oh, you don't have any symptoms, you know, you're not numb, you're not tingly, you've, you know, so, you know me as a person looks very different to sometimes how the scans go so quite often i'll try if you have an oncologist appointment or something bad you know medical is happening i'll always try go swimming afterwards because whatever they say in that meeting i can go swimming and remind myself i'm still alive you know even if they've said in that meeting oh you need to have surgery or you know this has changed this has grown i i then go and do something normal for me which is like it's that's really important to not get lost in necessarily what they're saying in the appointment and it, you know obviously it's not that I'm burying my head in the sand with what they say and you obviously take it into account and but I the nature of having an incurable disease which there are currently no known treatments for that will actually have proven to slow it down or you know there's nothing I can do so sitting and worrying all the time isn't good for me. So I'll go and do something I wanna do with my time. Like, rather than dwelling on what they've said, I can remind myself that, well, for today, I'm still here.
0: It, It goes back to that empowerment you felt, I imagine, going into elite sport, that you, as you say, you're not just a on paper you're not a stat or a sort of test result you are you know a person and whatever condition we're all in we can go and empower ourselves and by going through those processes of yeah going swimming
1: yeah the sport mentality definitely is still there even though i'm not competing and racing and that probably means i'm incredibly stubborn but it's you know well I can go out and I can go swimming and I can go for a walk and I can go and have fun with my friends. And, you know, just because that's what it says on paper doesn't mean I'm not going to go and ride my bike anyway. I mean, I'm not going to go and do the things I want to do. And that I think that stubbornness keeps me going a lot of the time <laughs> of like, well, you know, that's happening in my life, but that's not all that's happening in my life. And that is, that is not just my life i'm not defined by that
0: do you think people struggle with um that disconnect between knowing that you have a incurable um cancer and happiness sort of not do do you think some people sort of find it strange if you're having fun or do it like going swimming and doing things that it's like well how could you be doing that
1: Yeah, probably not people that know me. No. I think they know know what I'm like and, you know, that I'm not just going to sit around like, you know, wallowing the whole time. Mm. Um, But yeah, I think I've surprised myself how happy you can be with this like massive elephant in the room. But actually on a day-to-day basis, I have a lot of fun. And, you know, yeah, really awful days. And, you know, stress of scan results and you know college appointments and you know going on drug trials and things but you know actually something that my husband says is well even if we're sat in a hospital ward like we can still have a laugh you know we keep each other going that way and yeah I think you I have surprised myself of how much how much fun and joy you can have in everyday life even though there's this massive thing going on and at the same time
0: and going back slightly to that period where you obviously you found out that the cancer had sort of come back. Um, what was it like detaching yourself from being a paid elite athlete to, you know, you're still trying to go out and, you know, be active. You're not losing it completely, but Mm. you're losing something that had become so important in your life.
1: Yeah, it was really tricky. And it was something I was really struggling with until I talked to one of the performance lifestyle coaches at BC. He was saying, well, I'm not Liz the cyclist anymore because, you know, I'm not racing and I'm not competing and I don't have that structure anymore. And I just feel a bit lost and there's, you know, I don't feel... You know I'm not as fit as I was, and you know I've, if I go on my bike, all I'm doing is looking at the numbers and how rubbish they are compared to what I was doing six months ago. Which you know anyone else would go, well, you've you've got cancer, so of course your numbers aren't going to be as good. But speaking to Ben, who was he said, well, that's you know what you're going through is the same as anyone that's retired from elite sport, anyone who's who has stepped away from the program, if they even if they've chosen to do it, or are, you know you know, and I was forced to step away, you know, you're used to having that structure where every day someone has told you how many hours you're training for, what numbers you're putting out, how hard the session needs to be, and if you retire, that, you lose that as well, and if you've chosen to retire, you know, you're not necessarily known as, you know, so-and-so the rower anymore, or, you know, the runner, and that loss of identity is something that lots of people go through when they retire, which really helped because you're I was kind of going through two things at the same time of like grieving for the career that I'd lost and, you know, grieving also for like the life that I thought I was gonna have. Then you're trying to deal with I was trying to deal with all of that in one go, but actually you kind of need to separate it out and be, well, these feelings are because I have retired from cycling. You know, I haven't I haven't chosen to quit. I you know, I've had to step away and like that is my retirement and so those feelings are kind of related to that and then there's all these other feelings that I'm going through around you know life and what that looks like now and what that means and I'm just segmenting it out a bit and not getting quite so overwhelmed with like I don't know who I am anymore (laughs) and feeling lost is like actually understanding that uh, that's just like part of the process as an elite athlete when you do step away
0: and it's i guess it's sort of you've constantly had stereotypes or identities attached to you not from your choice as well in terms of cancer disability elite athlete is something you chose but then sort of um going through those cycles even you know Woman is something that yeah. will come up, and there's always you know, yeah, always labels. Things that are being labelled to you. Um, was this the sort of is this something that, again, you were consciously thinking about throughout? Did you were you consciously bringing up these things and trying to deal with them, or was this maybe the first time that it was actually? sort of because it kind of happened so quickly in terms of you finding out that Mm. you had to deal with it straight away it's sort of um, mentally
1: yeah i think i mean those first couple of weeks when you're diagnosed you're just in survival mode you know you're trying to make sure that you know when i get stressed i just can't eat so you know other people will comfy i mean jack are complete opposites in that but <laughs> so, you know if he's having a stressful day he'll have like double sandwiches at lunch whereas if i'm having a stressful day i'll forget to eat or I just can't stomach it and so you're just trying to get day to day to just cope with <laughs> cope with what's happening and i don't you know I don't start thinking about like dealing with it or processing it immediately um but you know fairly early on we made the decision to go to counselling. We go together to um, the McMillan Centre and have counselling just because, you know, you look after yourself physically, but, you know, mentally it's a lot, it's a lot to deal mm-hmm. with and process and, you know, so we try and look after ourselves in that sense by having that regular touch point as well. And, you know, it's not anything I'd ever be embarrassed to say. And, you know, I think there's that stigma around asking for help. And, you know, if you're physically unwell, you go to the doctor and say, you know, I've got a cough or I've got, and you know, uh, there should be no shame in saying, you know, my head is not okay. Hmm. And I really need help with, you know, trying to sort out what I'm doing. And so, you know, asking for that extra support.
0: And also, I mean, it's interesting that you, you go together. Obviously, that's not unusual for you, but the fact that that's important to highlight the fact that it's, you're going through this as a you know couple as a husband and wife and jack is it's important that he is you know keeping an eye on his mental health as well because yeah and
1: it's important for me to know that he's being looked after yeah you know there's everyone asks me how i'm doing how i'm feeling what's coming up for me But, you know, my number one is Jack. So, Mm. you know, to know, I mean, you know, we have been separately as well, but to know that we can go together and it's a space for both of us to talk about how we're feeling because we don't necessarily want to talk about it every day, you know, and ask, you know, deep down, well, how are you feeling? You know, what are you thinking? But it's a space for us that hour to really talk about the things that are bothering us and you know then we can leave and you know we're going to have a drink somewhere and crack on with like normal life but it gives us that space to really talk about the dark stuff that we we don't we don't want to have every day Hmm. um and you know it makes me feel better that i know that he is getting some support
0: is that a sort of weekly scheduled thing or do you just choose is that sort of when you feel like you need to go you go
1: so it's kind of it's monthly at the moment or monthly or six weeks at the moment so and but, you know we can increase it if we want to but it, we are we as a couple we're very good at talking about stuff anyway um but it's good to have it in and some weeks you go and think what are we doing here we're fine and then other weeks you go you sit down and you just lose it and you know think well I actually really needed that this week and you know it's just there regularly checking in to make sure that we're both doing okay
0: Thank you for listening. If you would like to see the portraits from this week's episode, please go to findingspace.cc. For more interviews like this, please subscribe to the Finding Space podcast. But more importantly, if this story resonated with you, please share. The more we engage with the topic of mental health, the further we can go to break down the stigma.